I do think that in and of itself, the momentum uh, is having its ups and downs. Mm-hmm. In some ways, we're seeing it down maybe in the past few days. But, I mean, we had a pretty big one. Yesterday was pretty sizable, but we had a pretty big one on Tuesday, for example. And I do think that uh, in addition to these protests, we're seeing the momentum just manifesting itself in different ways. I'm a Lebanese writer and researcher. I don't think we're going to see any kind of quote-unquote leadership uh, anytime soon. And I think that for various reasons that many people have already discussed, there's a sort of resistance towards having that. And I think we have a very justified hesitation towards any kind of uh, leadership positions because we fear, and I think rightly so, that any, uh, as soon as that happens, the government can sort of play it against us. Right. And that we we will enter a a game that is a game that has rules that are not designed for us in a sense, and we would be losing that way. Do you foresee a a, a necessary collapse? And when I say collapse, I mean both economic and political collapse for something new to emerge. Not necessarily in the in the near future, but in the long run. Do you think that the the situation has to get, in a sense, worse before it can get better? It's very interesting. I, I was just uh, I just wrote an essay on the the whole idea of uh, Rahin al Inhior, you know, going to a state of collapse, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, was turned into memes and jokes, and uh, as a the way I interpreted it was a sort of way of rebelling against that uh, feeling in a sense. Right. But to answer your to answer your question, I don't know if it's necessary. I'm personally very skeptical of the. Um, a theory or the idea, if you want, that things have, have to get worse before things get better. I think that uh, when things get worse, there's nothing preventing them from getting even worse. There's no inherent law of history or inherent law of whatever that says that, oh, we just need to suffer enough to really understand the pain of sectarianism or what sectarianism has caused us. Mm-hmm. What I would say is that it seems to be the case that we are getting to a situation or a state of a state, a general state that is worse than the current state that we're in. And I think that's very obvious, and I don't know anyone who would necessarily disagree with that. Economically, we're doing pretty badly. Yeah. Politically, there is a quasi-total collapse already of what we used to call the previous, what used to be the previous regime. The whole uh, binaries of March 8, March 14 doesn't, don't make much sense anymore. There's a lot of these things, and in that sense, there's already a collapse that's happening, if you see what I mean. What I would resist a bit is to say that things have to get worse before things get better, because, and maybe especially in a country like Lebanon, I think we, we shouldn't underestimate what worse can look like, and we shouldn't wish that, in a sense. Right. Uh, not, not saying that you're wishing that, but I do think that there is a tendency. It, it's a common tendency. I completely understand where it's coming from to basically say that we have to learn some way and we won't learn in any other way. But I think that's just a more moralistic position rather than one that's that's, uh, based in fact. In other words, because it's usually used as a red herring towards civil war, I'm I'm guessing that's where it comes from, that that's sort of the boogeyman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a perceived power play when it comes to Hezbollah's maneuvering. And I... This is a superficial example, but yesterday that uh, 
a giant Qasem Soleimani statue was erected in the south with that finger pointing towards Israel. The cabinet is not necessarily a Hezbollah government, but it's it's very sympathetic to Hezbollah. Is there any hesitation or caution that the protesters may end up facing a situation that previous demonstrations have reached, which is there is a a group in Lebanon that can steer these moments into a direction that benefits them more than the protesters. As far as Hezbollah is concerned, we're not just talking about the Lebanese issue. They look at Syria, Mm. they look at Iraq, and they obviously look at Iran as well. I Mm. think, if I'm not mistaken, one of uh, uh, Khamenei's uh, representatives is either on his way to Lebanon or something now as well, because today was the yeah. uh, you know, 40th commemoration since Leimani was assassinated. Mm. So like I do, I was, I've been worried about Hezbollah in particular, but not just Hezbollah, his reactions towards the protests from the very beginning. And indeed we saw this, what, like two days into the protests when, he gave, mm. when Nasrallah gave yes. his first speech. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, prob- the particular problem with Hezbollah compared to other political parties, and I, I'm assuming this has been made many times, is that Hezbollah's priorities are not just uh, a Lebanese issue, in a sense. Right. Now, far from me from saying that we shouldn't be more internationalist about our politics, that's actually what I believe, but obviously what we're talking about here is a very specific sectarian form of quote-unquote internationalism, which I obviously reject. Yes. Now, um, protesters, and I would include myself in this, because I don't think really there, there was any better way of preparing for this I think we are extremely under-equipped, resource-wise, uh, however you want to describe it. I'm not obviously not talking about weapons or anything like that. Resource-wise, just in the sense of access to media, uh, finances, organizational skills, if you want. Because at the end of the day, what Hezbollah is striving on is the same thing that's what all of the other sectarian political parties are striving on, which is the whole sectarian clientelist network that have really put a few number of people on top and everyone else at the bottom. Yes. with some people in between. And I think that protesters are having a difficulty competing with those people at the top, if you see what I mean, narrative-wise, especially in terms of propaganda, because we do not have any TV stations uh, that are there for us. I mean, you can yes. argue that, you know, Al-Jadid and LBC are more pro-revolution than Al-Manar, and I mean, sure, but that's a very low bar, you know, like we're not talking about a true alternative investigative journalism of the kind that I feel like, you know, the public source, the recent websites that was launched or what Megaphone are doing and what other some of these independents are trying to do. Yes. Uh, they're doing an excellent job. We're relatively lucky that we, we live in an age of social media where we are able to sort of compensate a bit for these, uh, let's say, disadvantages. Sure. But obviously, it's not fully the same thing. There's still something that's missing. Not everyone is on Twitter or on Facebook, you know. One of the many problems that we're going to face as protesters, or as supporters of protests, or as writers, or as just people who are generally concerned, is that we're not just dealing with local dynamics, we're dealing also with regional dynamics and indeed sectarian dynamics. And that's not to say that we should withdraw and not try and deal with that. I think actually that's one of the problems. We, we tend to not want to talk about Syria, not want to talk about even Palestine, which you know, traditionally yes. has been a pretty uncontroversial opinion or position to, or, you know, a situation to talk about. Uh, and we definitely don't talk about Iraq or Iran. We're seeing protesters, some of them do that, like in a good way, you know, trying to be intersectional about it. You know, that, that chant that I really love and I've been sharing of Saur of Kilil Bilden, you know, revolution in every country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that that's, it, that's the way forward. And I think the, 
the problem with that is that it's very difficult because we are already having to deal with all of the contradictions from within Lebanon, if you want. To yes. also have to deal with the contradictions from the region and indeed the world, that's obviously a difficult thing. But I do think might as well start somewhere. Is there a way for protesters to challenge that kind of authority without violence? And I know that when you said resources, I know exactly what you mean, that they're lacking in other things. But the yeah. the, the the violence component that one party, the, the tool that they have, which other parties, if they have it, it's minuscule compared to Hezbollah. Just yeah. looking, projecting into the future, is is there a way to at least show that that group is seriously part of the problem? Because I appreciate what you're saying. People hesitate on even talking about Hezbollah's specific role in, in those countries as well. It's like a, it's almost like that's not happening. It's outside of the country. We can ignore it completely. But just in terms of overcoming the regime and all of its components. It's almost easier to see Gibran Bessir fading over time or Saad Hariri or even anyone else just sort of disappearing gradually. But that group seems to be stronger and stronger over time. So Yeah, it, it yeah. is. It is. And part of the reason is the obvious one is that they're uh, in terms of the finances and in terms of their uh, yeah. organizational structure, it's not as it's more uh, resistant to the, the changes within Lebanon, in a sense, if you want to put it this way. Mm-hmm. And we all remember that Nasrallah himself said, I think it was his second speech, that even if the Lebanese state collapses, I will still pay you your salaries. Right, and, right. Uh, like, those are things that uh, I, like, I, would not, I would definitely not just you know, sit here and pretend to have the, the answer to this. Mm. What I would say is that Hezbollah has already... Uh, suffered a defeat that it de- definitely, and that's just not the optimist in me or whatever, that they definitely did not expect. So the mm-hmm. first, uh, the resignation of Hariri at the beginning after Nasrallah himself saying uh, that, you know, this mandate is not going to fall, without getting too much into the details, that was already a, an initial defeat. Right. But a further defeat, a much more important one, I think, is to see stuff like the Lebanese rapper Jaffa Boutoufar, sorry, uh, performing in uh, Nabatiye and in the Ba'ah and with chants and with songs, rap, you know, he's a rapper uh, with songs that are explicitly anti-Hezbollah and to have a, a, uh, an audience for that, whereas before the space was very much a privatized space, you can maybe get away with this if you do it in, you know, within a concert or anything like that. And yeah. even then, not always. Indeed, some of them do face uh, pressures from within. But uh, the fact that this is something that we have been seeing in public, I think we should be very careful not to underestimate uh, the long-term impact of this. There's a whole generation of people who have, for the first time, really seen an alternative, seen something that can even resemble an alternative. The alternative doesn't really exist yet. There's no uh, alternative political party. There may never be an alternative political party. It's just that uh, the, the hegemony, to use that term, that Hezbollah has had so far is mm-hmm. no longer as all-powerful uh, as it used to. And I think part of that is actually due to regional dynamics, is that the horrors of Idlib are so, on such a scale yes. that it's very difficult to justify anything like this, even if you were of the mindset of justifying something for, uh, like what happened in Aleppo, which already was quite the stretch to do. So yeah. I, do, I do think that the more, it's kind of uh, an answer to the, first, the, the earlier question as well, that they are getting definitely more confident mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we shouldn't misinterpret confidence or the public display of confidence anyway with necessarily a, a, a uh, assurance, you know, that everything yes. is going yes. fine. They're all confident all the time. That's part of the problem. They're all so confident and they, they, they definitely feel comfortable. You know, you see Nabi Hiberia talking in Parliament. He belongs there. You know, he, yeah. <laughs> he knows what he's doing as far as he's concerned. You know, like he, he, he can make jokes. He can give someone an extra five minutes just because he feels like it. He, that's his territory. But that doesn't change the fact that, you know, the guy is in his 80s and his party is 100% centralized around this one figure. Yes. And that regardless of if, if, for example, if you were someone who's pro-Amal and you, you are really concerned about the long-term longevity of Amal, that's not the best way to go about it. You know, like objectively right. speaking, it doesn't make much sense. So to just wind up in the sense, we shouldn't really uh, confuse, in a sense, mm-hmm. uh, public uh, displays of confidence with uh, what they might have doubts internally or whatever. Syria is one uh, um, issue in itself, of course, but there's also the fact that in Iraq we've had protests for the past four months now that are partly, they're not all about Iran, definitely not, but they are partly about opposing uh, sectarianism, and obviously Iran plays a very big role in that. And that's not to mention that the protests that happened in Iran themselves, which were very uh, quickly crushed, those are things that, you know, you can crush, you can terrorize, you can uh, brutally repress, but that doesn't in itself give any leg- uh, legitimacy in the long term. And I think Hezbollah, you know, as much as we want to say that they feel very confident about what they've been doing in Syria and everything, at the end of the day, it's costly. Lots of people have died on their side. This is something that they will have to reckon with in, uh, reckon with, sorry, in one way or another. And so... Yeah. To go back to the to to the protests themselves, I don't get too bogged down into uh, regional events, although I do genuinely believe that they're very important. Uh, the protesters themselves, I think that by by adopting a more internationalist framework, and I do genuinely believe that they would be able to to uh, challenge this sort of quote unquote internationalism that Hezbollah is already doing. So it's not about saying putting one foreign country ahead of Lebanon. And I mean, even right. saying myself, say this out loud, I just feel the hesitation coming in because I've been in so many situations where as soon as you mention something like Syria or Iraq or Iran, you're just, uh, you know, usually you're told, okay, you may be right, but you know, that's too complicated. Let's put it aside. The problem is that they're not putting it aside. You know, like whether we put it aside or not, that's our choice. But at the end of the day, we can either stand in solidarity with uh, activists and protesters in Syria, Iraq, Iran, Palestine, for that matter, or not. That's our choice, you know. I don't want to sound too cheesy here, but I do feel that we are stronger together as a unified bloc, in a sense, with all the contradictions and challenges and issues that that will pose, which it inevitably will. I do feel it's a better way forward than just having these islands of conflicts or whatever within... um, borders that don't make much sense anyway most of the time that just really make us as activists, progressives, anti-authoritarians, whichever words we want to use, leftists, etc., much weaker than otherwise. Now, there's a lot said there, and I want to just unpack a few things. First, I like that you, you're able to you're able to describe the alternative option that has not been there before. So that is a very important development, absolutely. People see an option that they don't, they see a way out of 
Hezbollah hegemony for the first time in, in a long time. And I also like that you've linked the protests, the domestic protests, to external protests. And you're seeing the common thread. I don't think it's cheesy at all, actually, even though it may have been Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign slogan, Stronger Together. But let's let's forget that for the moment. <laughs> as long as she doesn't come back with Bloomberg, I think we can just let that fade as well. <laughs> yeah, we can. Yeah. Right? But but I like I like that you're you're showing something which I did not see while the protests were happening. And I and I saw it on your on your Twitter feed that even Hong Kong, I mean, people are communicating with protesters all the way there. So there's a yeah. way of it's almost like a rare occasion where a multitude of demands across the globe are shared at once. And within that prism, I think I've I've tried to formulate my own sort of uh, my own challenge towards state propaganda or at least uh, dictatorships and and they're they're oftentimes unfortunate allies and whenever i'm trying to really hone down what i'm thinking there are a few a few twitter feeds that i turn to and yours is one of them and you have a fantastic episode i highly recommend anyone listening to this episode to go to the arab tyrant manual and look you up and i'm just going to just throw this out there uh this morning bernie sanders I mean, it's, be, it's the the idea is being floated that Tulsi Gabbard will be his VP pick for the upcoming uh, elections. Let's let's say that that's let's say that's a serious consideration. I I've seen you on Twitter v- very eloquently challenge anyone who's sympathetic to Assad's narrative, anyone that is sort of uh, protective of Iran for the wrong reasons, uh, anyone that sees uh, things that are problematic in the region as a positive for them. And it's this unfortunate alliance. Can I just ask you, though, and in, in, in going deep into this on the Lebanese scale, mm-hmm. do, you th- do you think that the, let's say, the traditional liberal, uh, progressive, whatever you want to call it, this leftist global uh, perspective, do you think that they see our demands lining up with theirs? Or do you sense that there's a problematic uh, prism here that they tend to be too close to, quote-unquote, resistance, and therefore Hezbollah still fits into their worldview better than the average protester on the street in Beirut? Because you're you're describing the internationalization of these protest movements. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the traditional liberal groupings abroad see those chants in Beirut lining up with theirs, or is it in itself problematic that Hezbollah still has a, a preferred status just because it considers itself as a resistance movement? No, I don't. Yeah, I mean, it's the latter. I don't. I think it's a problematic uh, angle uh, that is the, the, still the, the fairly common one. But I mean, that's that's part of the reason, and thank you for talking about the, the episode. I think I, I quite enjoyed making that one. Uh, part of the reason is that we're not seen as uh, political agents in the same way as, let's say, Americans are. Like, Americans can be bogged down in um, debates, uh, should I be a Democrat, should I be a Republican? And fundamentally what this actually means is that whether you're a Democrat or uh, if you're a Democrat, for example, you have to pay attention to Republicans. Mm -hmm. And that means that you have to deal with their realities, with their words, with their contradictions, with their lies, hypocrisies, whichever uh, terms we want to use. Whereas with us, usually, if we want to just use two simplistic examples, just because you're in New York and I'm in Lebanon now, yeah. with us, it's not a matter of um, 
looking at these protests as in let's say let's say I'm speaking as a hypothetical Americans looking at these protests in Lebanon as resembling things that are happening here. I wish that was the case. I feel that this was sort of the case in the early years of 2011. There was a sort of a cross-section between the Occupy movement in the West and, uh, you know, the, the, the Arab Spring, especially with uh, the one in Egypt and in Tunisia, had uh, quite a lot of resonance. There was quite a lot of things that was being written on. But, you know, long story short, we are nine years in right now, and I feel like there's much less of an engagement on that front. Mm-hmm. And what that means, uh, because there's less of an engagement on that front, what that means is that you, the oversimplification of everything, the reduction of everything into just geopolitical actors, you know, you're either uh, with Iran or you're against Iran, and that's it. You know, you're either this or that, and that's it. And there's no one in between. There's no one on the ground. There are no protesters. Their demands don't matter. I mean, the same crowd, the, the ones that I usually call tankies, which is, you know, a slur for basically authoritarian leftists, yes. uh, the same crowd who um, that usually downplays uh, Hezbollah or Bashar al-Assad would also downplay, you know, the Hashtashabi uh, in Iraq and uh, the, the Ayatollahs in Iran. Yes. And that's, it's sort of seen as just, it's a regional thing. It's not, it's almost like there's no borders and there's no internal dynamics and there's no, you know, things that need to be learned at a local level in a sense. And so, yeah, I mean, long, uh, to answer the question in a, in, a, in a long way, I guess, it is very problematic. And we're still at a situation where, I'm, I mean, to go back to the burning example, I'm still hoping that this doesn't happen. I've seen this floated around as well. And I know that there's like half a dozen other people uh, that he's also considering. Yeah. I really hope that. Uh, I don't see, uh, even from a purely cynical, strategic level, I don't see the benefit of having someone like her. Yes. Uh, yes. But, you know, if that happens, then we're going to be facing yet another barrage of obstacles ahead of us if we really believe in some kind of progressive alliance or whatever, because she's not, like, Gabar is not just soft on Assad, to put it very lightly, she's also very close to Hindutva in India, to, to Netanyahu, to, it's going to be such a mess, and so to Sisi actually in Egypt, that would cause issues, but I mean, yeah, that's a different story. You use the term Palestine Incorporated, which I, which I use myself, it's almost like a, it's a hijacking of causes that are legitimate and then skewing them into something else, something almost almost potentially a, a perverted interpretation of what it means to support a genuine cause. And I, I think yeah. uh, you've, you've said you've said this you, you've written uh, repeatedly that you can be pro-Palestinian at once and also be very critical of Assad and critical of the Iranian regime and support the Iraqi protesters that and you're saying this right now as well that you don't need to pick sides. You can have basic principles, and those principles can reflect whether it's in Palestine or even in Hong Kong or anywhere in Venezuela. And I mean, I would even go further. For me, when it comes like the Palestinian cause is something that's very personal for me. My grandfather is from Haifa, and it's something that I I very, very aggressively, if you want, uh, reject whenever this, this pops up in this way. But mm-hmm. especially when it comes to Syria, because Syria is really my focus outside of Lebanon in terms of my activism, work, whatever you want to call it, even personal relationships, the mm-hmm. fact that uh, the most notorious Mukhabarat branch is called the Palestine branch, the fact that <laughs> Hafez al-Assad invaded Lebanon to partly to crush the PLO at the time, the fact that Bashar al-Assad laid siege on Yarmouk, among others, yes. the fact, you know, all of these things, if someone can call themselves pro-Palestine and be okay with this, then they should be the ones revisiting what they mean by pro-Palestine, because that, that's a very obvious contradiction there. 
It's one yes. thing to be opposed to the uh, few Arabs and Palestinians who participate, who uh, join the IDF, for example. And indeed, we should oppose them because that's hypocritical, it's disgusting, etc. But then to just say it's totally fine to be part of Bashar's army, then there's something that has to be that has to be dealt with here. And I guess yes. the the tone that you can see of my frustration is that it's been nine years now, and we're still dealing with the the, the contradictions and the hypocrisies over something like the siege of Yarmouk, or even if you want to go further, the, the invasion of Lebanon in 76. You know, you can go further, further back as much as you want. There is something that really needs to be dealt with here. And for me, someone who calls himself pro-Palestine, that means nothing to me. I wait until I understand and I speak to that person and I want to know what exactly are their politics. If right. they don't know much about Syria, fine. You know, no one can know everything about everything. That's not a problem in itself. But to actually actively stand with a dictator, with a butcher, that, that's something that I have a problem with. What you're saying resonates, seeing that, seeing Qasem Soleimani's statue with the token Palestinian flag on top is so absurd. And, uh, yeah. Well, I, I, it's, it's something that is truly revolting. It's revolting. And it's an, it's an unfortunate circumstance where you get a similar, uh, similar viewpoint in the West that you would not necessarily expect, which is hijacking a cause. There's no need for that. And I, I really hope Tulsi Gabbard is not the VP pick, but uh, we'll have to wait and see on that. Uh, yeah. Joey, you're very kind with your time. And uh, thank you again for doing this. And I hope we can continue uh, communicating, even though both of us will not be in Lebanon. Uh, but I think uh, these voices matter, whether they're at home or abroad. Good thank luck. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. second episode with Joey Ayoub, and I hope to have him on regularly down the road. The Arab Tyrant Manual episode referred to in the conversation is linked in the details box below, as well as Joey's Twitter handle. And once again, if you're enjoying these episodes, consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Both are linked in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. (laughs) 